Hey, what's good, my friends? New episode of the Gomaluka podcast. The uh, This one is on the Gomaluka Live Q&A show, episode 10, which originally aired on November 23rd, 2020. So that's last year. Um, I'm uploading um, all these uh, Q&A shows because um, I'm revamping the live Q&A show. So keep an eye on that. And um, yeah, keep an eye on my socials because it will be relaunched, revamped, and reinvigorated soon. Um, but for now, listen to the amazing conversation I've had with Damon Corey. Enjoy. This is the Gomaluku Podcast. All right, my friends, welcome to episode 10 of the Gomaluku Live Q&A show, answering questions on indigenous people's rights, education, leadership, advocacy, and pretty much everything in between. Today with a very good friend of mine, Damon Corey. Um, I'll let him introduce himself because um, he has, the man has so many hats on, has such an inspiring and such a uh, profound, a very good background story um, to his um, um, to his name and to his, his, his everything. Um, so I'll let him do, do that, uh, let him do the honors. Um, like when I think about Damon, like, he is, um, I think, of him as um, the best roomie one could ever had have. Um, we roomed. I don't know. I don't know why, Damon. Seriously, um, have you? Re- didn't you realize that every time we go to the UN in New York, that Pamela Kraft, our fairy godmother to the, to the Indigenous Movement, executive director of the Tribal Link Foundation, she always puts us together in one room. And I don't know why, though. Like if like. I, I get the feeling of like you, you get you have the, these two kids that are always up to no good. Um, you put them in one in one room, hoping that they'll behave, um, and so so that you don't have to bother with it. That's always the divide that I, that I get. Like um, how do how do you how do you, how, how do, you do you always um, experience that? Like us rooming together when we're in New York. Yeah, now that you now that you mentioned it. You know what I think is going on? Because ever since the very first time that we roomed together for the permanent forum, we brainstormed and we came up with something new. So it's like every time we're together, there's mm. some some new indigenous entity gets, you know, thought of, started, created, what inspired, you know, somehow. So it is never time wasted. Like all the times we were together, we we had come up with the the Caribbean Amarindian Development Organization idea, bounce it off you, you gave me some suggestion pointers. We you know, tweaked it and then it was born. The Indigenous Democracy Defense Organization, another you know, another thing we brainstormed about and saw the need for and we tweaked it and it's, it exists now. Mm-hmm. Um, before then you'd come up with the, the novel way of getting the students to take their training back home uh, with enthusiasm, put it into their communities and be force multipliers. So all of that, all those ideas came out of our time together. So. I think Pam realized after the the first time that uh, it's beneficial for these guys to to be in the same space <laughs> for two weeks. Something's good. Good is gonna come out of it. It's a very good way of spinning the whole thing. <laughs> how I initially thought about it, uh, but like, w- w- yeah, when you when you explain it like that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, that yeah, we um, full disclosure when people um, so people know it's not that we. Uh, we share a we share a hotel room and we spoon each other every every night. Um, <laughs> um, it it is more like we we talk a lot, um, like an awful a lot um, 
in a way that uh, we 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 bounce ideas off one another. It is like a, like a like a like a breeding space actually of ideas and and, and thoughts. And um, I always appreciated um, the. I think all people appreciated it as well. You remember the the last time that we did um, what was it project access and then project another project that that, yeah. that we started um, that it was like a such like such deep conversation that we had with the trainees um, in, in our in our room um, just just about everything mostly life actually and, 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 exactly. and mental health as well and, and like your your place within the movement within the community. Um, so yeah, so starting to think of it, um, always appreciate it. Like the, the thing is when, when I, um, so Starbuilding Foundation every year, um, obviously not this year, um, before the permit form, uh, it has project access, brings in like, selects, selects um, 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 yeah, trainee, uh, trainees and volunteer and, and fund in front of from the voluntary fund to go into like a deep dive for three to four days before the MRF start of the the form starts in like the whole UN system, um, drafting statements and everything else. And Damon and I, I'm, I think my first um, project access was in 2009, brought in by my mom. My mom was was part of it um, before that. I think um, Damon met my mom before she met, uh, he met me, fortunately. And um, yeah, it is such a powerful process uh, and, 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 and safe space, I would say, for people to learn about the permit form. It's not, not because I'm one, we are one of the mentors, but um, it is something that I feel as a profound way, in a very profound way, as a, um, a safe indigenous cocoon where people can learn about the UN uh, before they go into like the belly, belly of the beast. Um, definitely we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, like, all right, Damon, before I forget, and, and for the, 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 the 1% or the 2% that doesn't know Damon, um, like give us the brief background, the, the, the three minute, four minute version of Damon Corey. Um, what's, um, who, were, who were you when you grew up? Um, um, uh, family situation, you know, the whole, the whole thing, whatever you want to share. Um, so people, so we can have a very good conversation. Okay. Uh, first of all, I was born as a biological male and I still am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Eagle clan of the Lokono Arawak people. Um, yes. A lot of Caribbean people know Arawak and Carib. The people that you think you know as Carib call themselves Kalinago in the islands and Kalina on the mainland. And same thing, there's no people who actually call themselves that word Arawak, but that is a name given to us by another tribe. And Europeans sort of um, know that name better. So in order for other people to understand who we are, it's easier for us to just say Lokono Arawak. Then they remember the second part of your name. Oh yeah, you guys from the history books of the Caribbean. So they know who you're talking about. Um, like the Taino, if they're better known in that sense, so they don't really have to say Taino Arawak, but just as the because of the linguistic uh, ancestral connection, many of them do say Taino Arawak, and of the, they're the islands, and Lokono Arawak is the mainland, because um, we were one of the mother cultures that the Taino evolved from. 
but they incorporated also Mesoamerican um, tribal cultures, so they became more socially complex. But we still always view them as our cousins uh, to this day. I remember speaking with elders back you know, when I was just 19 and married back into the tribe, and they would talk about what Columbus did to our cousins in the islands, and these are men in the 80s, and the tears would be running down their face. So mm. it's then when I realized that, you know, we're one people, and the the islands and the oceans separated us geographically, but spiritually, our heart is still with them, and, and all of the Taino that I know, their heart is still with us as well. Um, but it, it's very hard to... In brief, uh, my great granddad was the last hereditary chief of our clan of the tribe, not the last hereditary chief of the local Arawak people, because nobody knows who that was. But at least in Guyana and for our clan, he was the last hereditary chief, which is the traditional way for us to um, have the leadership system. The British are the ones who changed that and installed a system where every three years we have to elect the chiefs that we, that we have and that system is still in place to this day um, but everybody knows the traditional system was not like that and you find society is divided in, in a sense because you have those who who only know the British system or, or they prefer that than the traditional system and then you have another faction of the tribe that they have more respect for the traditional system and so it's something like um, I guess like, like in a microcosm of what goes on in the UK. Not everybody supports the royal family mm -hmm. and everybody is against them either. They have your, your populations that support one system over the other. But unlike, as you know, unlike the European hereditary system, our leaders did not have any power to, to enforce our will on anybody. We led by persuasion, not coercion. If the people thought that you were a lousy chief, they'll just withdraw from your village and go to another village and live under another hereditary chief who did a better job. So you get more, more influence and you're more successful, the better a leader you are, the more you can, can give away to your people. And they see a benefit of having you at the helm, then they respect and follow you. But you know, if you become a, a tyrannical jackass and you know, try to give people orders, that's not, that's not our way. You immediately lose support and is not father to something either. Very often it's father to brother, father to nephew. What it never was, was um, females were never traditional leaders. But we right now, we have an elected leader who's female. She's the first one in our history. And I support her and work with her as much as I can. I've had good relationship with, with pretty much all of the elected leaders because we are one people and we need to uh, cooperate instead of being you know, antagonistic towards each other. I don't get into, I don't interfere in their dealings with the national governments in Guyana or Suriname. And when, but when they want to do something traditional, I don't go and ask them permission to do it either. I know what rights I have to do spiritual and cultural things. And so we have that kind of uh, diplomatic positive relationship between us. Mm -hmm. I don't get involved with local politics and they don't get involved in any ancestral um, spiritual practices or cultural practices that I, revive or lead in the tribe. So it's been working well so far. Um, there was a smallpox and measles epidemic that killed almost everyone in our clan when my great-grandfather was still alive. And he only had one surviving daughter, which was Shoko um, Laliwa. In English, her name means little yellow butterfly. 
she's the last one in her clan to be born and grow up naked in the jungle. As you know, the kids will run around without any clothing whatsoever until they hit puberty. And then boys and the girls will wear a loincloth and, and cover their private parts. But you know, so she grew up you know, having her, her skin tattooed and naked and content, our traditional ways. But when the epidemics killed off almost everyone, and her father knew he couldn't pass his chieftaincy on because it's not father to daughter. He never had a female leader before. So what he told her was if any of her sons or her grandsons, but some male descendant of his through his last surviving child married back into the tribe, then his authority would pass. And I you know, grew up hearing granny telling these stories because my, my granny and her two sisters and her three brothers were the six children that this, um, we call her Princess Marion because she, when she was Christianized, she was given the English name Marion, the same Shokola Liwa. And she kept the traditional spirituality alive. Her husband was um, uh, actually a, a mixed race Dutchman in Guyana, but he did not really support our animist spirituality. So she had to smoke her tobacco and pray in private. He thought that, you know, indigenous spirituality was nonsense. So he didn't support her mm. in that. But anyhow, 1925, she and her husband and the six kids emigrated from Guyana to Barbados. Uh, so it's like the family, the leadership of the clan went into exile. And from 1925, my one of her older, second eldest son who um, went to England, uh, there's about a hundred of us descended from him alone up there. He was in World War II and so on. Uh, he went back to Guyana in his sixties to try to fight for the tribal, the original chiefdom. And that wasn't successful because at that time the communists were in power and they, you know, everything belonged to the state. They didn't recognize indigenous rights. So after him, in fact, between me and him, he was the only one from the exile descendants who made contact back with the, the, the surviving members who were left behind. Um, but until I did it in 1992, we married back into the tribe. And it just so happens, I didn't know at the time, but my wife was 17, I was 19. She is a descendant of the, the man who was the holy man, the medicine man to my great grandfather. So as you know, there are our people, they came from the same chiefdom, but they moved, her ancestors emigrated from there after my great grandmother left. And they joined, they were the fourth family to join the village of Pakuri. And their Christianized surname was Simon. And many of the most famous artists in Guyana have been from the Simon family. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's how we ended up in Barbados and I was born over here, uh, but I made sure my kids were born back on tribal land in Pakuri, uh, the two boys and, and you have two girls as well. Uh, you met, you met Hatwe and Sabanto. Uh, yeah, so that's how, how, I guess when I was 16, I told my grandmother, because I grew up with the oral history, you know, all the chiefs who did this and that, and our people are on the reservation and they're very poor. As we were like um, in Barbados to what they would call in North America, I guess, urban Indians. There's no reservations here in this island. So you're just part of the general population. But we know our identity. We kept the family history alive. And so I was growing up knowing that I didn't really belong here. And that's what pushed me to go at 19 back to the reservation and the tribal lands and marry back into the tribe. Mm -hmm. uh, seven days after I met my wife for the first time, we were getting married because I had left Barbados with that intention that, you know, I'm looking for a wife. Um, now, when I got back to Barbados and I told my parents, so by the way, when I was in Guyana, I got married. <laughs> so they were 
they were shocked about that. And a lot of people didn't think it would last. So you silly young people, you do crazy things and it's not gonna work. Uh, 28 years later, we're still together. So it did work, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> so also this, this rich history, which is, um, thank you for, no, not thank you. Uh, but it, it is when I'm like, So what I'm sorry. What what I'm trying what I'm trying to say is like thank you so for for, for uh, explaining that. And I'm I know that it's much broader and much more complex and much more detailed than that. Uh, so thank you for um, trying to make it brief in like four or five minutes. Um, is given that is a very um, uh, detailed and a very rich history. Is that in any way uh, documented? Um, in like history books or um, any in any other way accessible for um, yeah the indigenous peoples uh, um, for the Lakono Arawak, for example. Right. Well, <clears throat> actually, yeah. Because when I was 16, I, I told my grandmother, uh, "Grand, by the time I'm 20, I'll be married back into the tribe and I'll be a father." And she thought, "Oh, that was just you know a child saying you know their aspirations, but maybe nothing will come to it." But yeah, married at 19 and before my 20th birthday, our first child was born. So I fulfilled my own prophecy I put on myself. I promised to my grandmother. Um, her mom, as I said, our, there's no word for princess in the tribe, but we just call her out of respect because she's the daughter of the hereditary chief. Her grave, Granny's mom's grave in Barbados is the only known burial place of a member of the Lokono Arabat traditional nobility anywhere in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So it's become somewhat of a minor tourist attraction because also her, her gravestone is the only gravestone in the world that's written both in English and in our local Arawak language. So for those reasons, the, the Ministry of Culture in Barbados and the Barbados Museum, they're aware of our family. Um, been very supportive over the years. Uh, so yeah, I can't, can't uh, complain about that. We, mm -hmm. this, this country is a neutral country. Um, so there's no fair persecution here, like what you would experience if you dare to go back to Indonesia. Um, nothing, nothing like that to worry about here. So mm -hmm. Barbados is a good home base for indigenous rights um, organizations or entities because there's never any political interference or persecution here. Sometimes depending on which government is empowering Guyana or Suriname, they would interfere and, and you know, you, you may get the odd death threat from a certain minister who really you know so yeah that that all that has happened over over the years mm. um when you mentioned about where you could find that well as you mentioned it was it earlier yeah earlier this year i think it was this year or late last year um i wrote a book because granny is one of those people that inspired me um 25 years the amazon is is burning 25 years of indigenous resistance inspired by by native women and my grandmother being the first one of those who as a child I always grew up hearing granny telling stories and you know that inspired me of this little woman what she went through and what mm -hmm. she was fiercely proud of and then uh, my wife being you know very militant on the side of indigenous rights although she's just four foot eleven so she got a star as a hobbit in Lord of the Rings or something but <laughs> So it's not the size of the, the 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 dog in the fight is the size of the fight in the dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then there are other women like um, Ellen Gabriel, the Mohawks. Um, 
You remember 1990 when there was that huge um, crisis in Oka yeah. where the Mohawk Warrior Society came to defense of the Six Nations and they literally had a standoff with the Canadian Army that lasted for months. Bridges were seized and uh, there were shootouts with the, with the police and all sorts of things. But that really showed me, because I remember seeing Ellen Gabriel on the front lines, you know, right in the face of Canadian soldiers, you know, just right up in the face shouting at them and pointing at them. And she was unarmed and they were the M16s and this little woman was showing no fear at all. Mm -hmm. So she inspired me too. I mean, I was uh, young at the time, but I did try to, to get, I actually got to Canada. I had enough money saved, I bought a plane ticket and went, but I didn't get as far as them because the, the Canadian police at Aquisasne, there's a police station right near to Aquisasne and they held me there in detention and then the family had to get involved and you know usual nonsense i wanted to go and show solidarity and join with the with the mohawks on the front lines but as far as the canadian police were concerned that you know you're coming to do some some terrorists or subversive things so they detained only spent one night in that um, cell and then the the barbadian uh, embassy there helped get me out and repatriate me back to barbados so it was useful again, but that kind of, that started, because uh, that was before I married, that started, um, I was only 17, that started at 25 years of vigilante activities in the name of Indigenous rights, but it all boils back to being inspired by Indigenous women. So mm. that's why I put that in the title of the book. Um, in the book, I do not, I may reveal a lot, but I'm not silly enough to give actual dates and countries and you know locations and all that i'm vague in the sense that most i will say is which tribe i was with when i did x y or z mm -hmm. and i will say what we did but they, there's no names where you can go and round up and ask any more details or they're like the Mokushi tribe they half of the tribe is in guyana half in brazil so when i'm talking about stuff i did with them you have no knowledge or proof which side of the border i did these things in but i do detail what we did do against illegal miners, um, illegal ranchers, there was human trafficking, you know, not only in that area, but there are quite a few countries in Amazonia that uh, they cross the borders illegally and go to, to either participate in or help finance or organize different you know, vigilante activities. Because if, if a parent comes to you, you may not know the people who have indigenous parents. They, they can't turn to the police, they can't turn to the government, they can't turn to the army because all of those people are either, they either don't care or they're on the payroll of the criminals who, are, who have kidnapped their daughter and are keeping her like a sex slave. So what, what recourse does such a parent have? If it was you or me and it was our daughter and we were poor and helpless, wouldn't we want anybody to come to help us? We wouldn't care if it was legally sanctioned or not. The main thing is to get your child back. So that's where I don't, as I tell my kids, breaking, I would rather break the laws of men than the laws of God. And to me, if somebody's in desperate need, God would want you to break whatever human mortal law that you have to in order to do the right thing. So I'm not bothered by that. But I mean, still, I'm not going to allow my enemies the opportunity to put me in court and prosecute me for things that I've done. Well, I know I broke their laws, but they can't prove it. There's nobody alive today to go and testify against me or what I did in this place or whatever. So I was able to re reveal just enough uh, in the book to keep it interesting and factual. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that that book you wrote yourself, right? Is that that's uh, totally authored by yourself? Um, because um, for people that are watching and listening, um, Damon is one of the few people that I admire in terms of being able to put thoughts into words um like the way that he writes articles and i'll, I'll put definitely put uh, some links to the to articles that he writes and the, the link to the book in the show notes um like so you can have a sense of like his his writing talent actually um is, is it a talent is it something that you had all, all along or is it something that you um developed over time um i, I can imagine that you want to like be able to uh, describe um, things as good as possible. Um, yeah, any any insights in, into that? That uh, of the, your yeah talent of not only writing but also interviewing. You're also very good at that. Well, all right. Well, I grew up with mom. I don't know. It must be something that was in you. Although circumstantial things like mom saying she named me Damon after Damon Runyon. Some. American writer who was well known in the 60s and 70s. I may have read maybe one of his books, I don't know, but she said she named me after a writer anyway. Um, but yeah, always, that was one subject I, I did love in school was was writing, uh, English language. Uh, I guess if I grew up in Spanish country, I would have loved Spanish language, any language, I just, I just like to write. Um, and especially before now, I could express myself. Like when you first met me for sure, I preferred to, I could do a better job expressing myself on a piece of paper or in an email or something than in person. Mm. I was still kind of um, a bit shy when it comes to speaking in public. Um, but yeah, the, and, and I never went to university to be trained as a journalist or you know anything like that. So if, if I do a good job, it'll have to be something that came you know from inside of me um <clears throat> but yeah as as you know i don't write about anything unless i feel emotionally involved in it if what's happening to you is is upsetting me is, is hurting my feelings you know i want to write about it and i i want to put my feelings into my words mm. if it's something mundane i don't get motivated to write about it or something you know a standard run of the mill. I can do something like that. I, if I'm going to write about something, it's because I feel passionate about what I'm talking about. Otherwise, I just don't bother. So maybe some people like, like, I like the vibe that that, that sort of writing gives them, um, because for sure it's not going to be standard format of, of professionally written stuff, but it would have more of a, a emotional impact. I think. Mm. Uh, can you uh, just give, give us an example? Because um, um, we, what we did, for example, it was through the, the, the previous years at the, the Project Access, you, like what is the process that you did? Because you always went in um, and then at the end of the, pro, of the print form, you always all, also posted or published some interviews. So what was the process that you, that you utilized, taking into account like you have to feel like emotion, emotionally attached to a certain story is there, um, yeah, maybe one, one, one article that you wrote that you were like, uh, could, could give some example of, of um, the process that you used, what you felt? Well, yes, I like to listen to all of the students' life stories. 
And well, because you know, there have been times where you will, as you know, there's usually 20 to 24 students from around the world every year. Uh, but because we only have a few days, um, it's not possible to write articles on everyone. So I have to cut it down to not more than half. So it's, it's been hard sometimes to choose which half of the students' life stories that you want to write about because all of them are so unique as like every time we're together with them, there's some, somebody's life story is totally you know, different to anything we've heard before. So it's like, whoa, you know, I didn't know that that shit is happening there. You know, this is something that the world needs to know about. Or, whoa, this person went through so much. You know, it's really, uh, it's really numbing in a way. But then also, if I feel honored to meet such people because the the, the moral caliber of, of the students that are there is is really much higher than you find in average society. And that's something that that I uh, really love about indigenous peoples in general is that the the sincerity of the of the human being is something that is pretty you don't find that in everyday urban non-indigenous society where a lot of a lot of it is superficial you know people smile and you know shake your hand but behind your back they think you're a jackass or you know, they don't really care it's just for this moment in time this person may be useful to me so let me let me smile in his face and get what I need. But in most indigenous peoples that are still motivated by traditional cosmovision, you don't get that. They either like you or they don't like you. They're not going to pretend to like you because they have an ulterior motive. That mm. is a, a non-indigenous thinking that is spreading like a cancer among us, but it is still so far not the, not the norm. It's the exception to the rule in indigenous societies. So that, that's something that I really take comfort in. Yeah. Um, explain to people, because there's one story that not a lot of people know, um, but I, I'm very sure that, that you're proud of, of that moment, was uh, that you described that you wanted to present something at the Purim Forum, but uh, when you heard a certain story that you decided not to present it and just um, support that particular story. Remember that that thing that you that you said? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like um, when you, everyone who first goes to the permanent forum, you go there with, you want to talk about your people's issues and get it out there, you know, yeah, but go back and show your people that yeah, you made good use of your time on their behalf. But when you see some of the, the shock, what you think was a big deal to you is small potatoes compared to what other people are going through. I mean, you could remember Hmong refugees in our, from Laos in a hotel room showing us videos and photographs of, of indigenous children that were disemboweled by, by Laotian soldiers. And just because they're indigenous minority that you know, is not under the control of the state, you know, things like that, you can't want to talk about um, a minor crime that happened to your people ahead of, of giving someone like that the airplay that they need to, to get their atrocities revealed. So I realized that, you know, you need to step back. And we've all seen it there. People are so determined to have their say and they want to use longer than, than the time allotted. They don't care about the people after them who are not going to get to speak because you went over your three minutes. 
you know, that, that kind of selfish attitude is not indigenous attitude. It's supposed to be all about we and not about me. So yes, I really had something I wanted to talk about, but there had someone else who had something that any honest person would see as more important that needed to be spoken of. So, you know, okay, I take a step back, you go ahead. It's more important for you to have your say. My day may come at another time or it may not, but I don't feel like I, you know, did anything wrong or disappointed anyone by, by doing that. Yes, we have to recognize when there are other issues that are greater than our own and eat humble pie, you know, stop thinking that the world revolves around us and the sun shines out of a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Damon, you always have a, have a way of making me laugh, in, even in serious conversations. Um, I can remember, like, numerous um, instances that, that you, like, made me uh, crack up and when I had to be very serious. So um, this is not, um, uh, this, this is a one, this whole conversation is one of them as well. Um, so people, I apologize if I had to crack up in the middle of it because uh, this is just Damon being Damon and me responding to Damon as as a very good friends. Um, Damon, there's a, there, um, people have sent in questions. Uh, thank you so much everyone for sending in questions uh, when they, they heard that uh, the, um, the infamous or the famous uh, Damon Corey would uh, <laughs> uh, was, was joining was joining the show. Um, obviously, we talked a little bit about about your interviewing skills. So, one question that um, people sent in was, "What is the one question you you have to ask when interviewing Indigenous peoples?" Mm. Well, I really, to be honest, I never had like a list of questions. I just want to get to know the person. And I, I invite them, you know, what is this something that you, because you're, you're being interviewed by me and it's going to go public. Are there things that you would like the world to know? If so, please share them with me uh, after, you know, I get to know your life story and I'll put something together at, at the end of it. So it's more of a letting them get it off their chest what they need to get off and we just, just listening patiently and and the inspiration will come at the end of it. Or this is how I'm going to put together what all that I've heard tonight. So mm -hmm. it's more of a ad hoc thing than any planned you know, format. And, and and once you go into that conversation, for example, like starting that that interview for for your for your before you write, um, is that mind like obviously you listen first, but is it like to I can imagine that people feel very um, how would I say it uncomfortable to to put them in itself in like a vulnerable position of like sharing whatever um they want to share and or sharing their 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 fears and needs and everything else is it something that do you um uh, yeah like open up with a story or do you uh, how do you start that conversation yes um i guess different different uh, modalities work with different people because they are they i know one case of somebody who was very guarded about saying anything uh, i think you were there that that time too mm -hmm. and sort of uh, she almost complained about um, the interview kind of being too personal or whatever but then by the next day she realized where we're coming from and other people had shared their stories in that vein and she came around and, and realized that you know it was not like we were working for any intelligence service and trying to set her up 
it was a genuine brotherly love thing and we, we want you know to hear your story and then others are quick they've already been through so much that they recognize that the more i get the information out the better not to sweep things under the rug so they they'll go with the flow and you know there's mm. no problem getting getting them to open up but then there, there are some that you have to open up first you have to make that first initial step and show them hey this is what happened to me i trust you and i'm sharing this with you and you know leave it on your conscience that you know you could feel um, that you can trust me likewise uh, so it's a two-way street so every student is different but i'm the kind of person that as you know because when i met you right away i say you know this guy's heart is in the right place and we became friends right away and as soon as i meet somebody the first time i either like them or dislike them based on the vibe that i get Mm. And it always proves correct over the years. Everybody who I did not like when I first met them has turned out to be, you know, a deceptive person or dangerous in some way. And everybody that my spirit took to right away has turned out to be a genuine uh, friend and a sincere person. So I kind of go with my gut when it comes to that too. Um, we've, I think we've only, we've only had one instance where there was a, a disingenuous student and they did not write about that person because it, it became you kind of sell out yourself when if you come from indigenous background and somebody you know is is spinning a yarn you can pick that up pretty quickly you can fool other fools but you can't fool people who know what it's like to to be an indigenous person and kind of things that go on in your communities so what mm -hmm. that was what one in over over 10 years so uh, we had literally 200 more other students who have been totally above board and have been wonderful examples of, of the human spirit yeah um thank you so much for sharing that and it goes also like um to like into the second question um in these conversations that that we have you we you alluded to it in it towards the in the beginning of the this this whole conversation um like our hotel room i yeah hotel room with like a reading space of like good conversations um iddo indigenous indigenous democracy defense organization uh Emerine and uh, development organization uh so some things that that you that you came up with um in in the, in these rooms sorry in the in the room um um what what made you um yeah yeah, shit. So now I've got the whole train. I'm, I'm, I lost my train slot. So like, yeah, these organizations you incubated actually in, in, at, at the at the at the Perm Forum. Um, yeah, can, can you explain a little bit about what, what the IDDO is and the Amerindian Development Organization is, and what your role is it uh, in that in those organizations are? Okay, well, I start with the with CADO Caribbean Amerindian Development Organization first because. I realized from 16 years voluntary work at the OAS and the working, the indigenous working group of the OAS. Uh, people who don't know OAS is Organization of American States. That's all the all the countries of the Western Hemisphere except for Cuba are involved in, in that. Um, so we were the last 16 years of the negotiations to, that came up with the American Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That was why I was working on for, for the last 16 years. They had other colleagues who 
uh, were in it almost 14 years before me. So those veterans, they sort of, uh, you know, followed uh, follow their example and, and learned the ropes from them. Um, and, but I realized there that there wasn't consistent representation in the Caribbean. I was one of the most consistently uh, present Caribbean indigenous delegates there. Mm-hmm. And you that you may see somebody from Suriname this session, but then in, you don't see them again uh, for another few years. Yeah, you see somebody from you know from Dominica, then you don't see somebody there another few years. So, but I every time I had a session for those sixteen years, I would go because um, I and then I realized too that there wasn't enough unity in the Caribbean um, where you had some organizations that only represented segments of, of the Caribbean, not the whole Caribbean. So that's why I said, no, looking at the map, Caribbean Sea, you have the north of the Caribbean Sea, the Great Antilles. Okay, that's Taino territory. Then you have the far west of the Caribbean Sea, the Kuna. We could never forget the Kuna. They are literally the only indigenous peoples living on islands in the far western Caribbean Sea. So I reached out to the Kuna as well and had their input and advice in, in Cado as like an honorary um, honorary membership for them, but they, they do have the, the power to, to influence our decisions with their positive advice. Mm-hmm. Then the Eastern uh, Caribbean, the Lesser Antilles, the Calinago in Dominica, the only indigenous formally recognized territory that exists. So they, the former chief, Irvin Sorgis, is a founder member of Crado, invited him in. Um, they have Brother Mukaro Borero um, and Sister Taipeli of the Taino that are involved. Um, as co-founders too. And then you have uh, me representing the, the southern part of the Caribbean with the Guyanas, um, where the migrations start it started into the into the islands in the first place. So we are the only indigenous entity that represents all four corners of the Caribbean Sea. We have uh, the Imbara tribe in Panama is one of the members of, of, of Cado as well. We have in Baracoa, Cuba the descendants of the Taino uh, communities that are there, I mean, they still, uh, they had Cuban government genetic tests on them to prove that they were who they, they always said they were and who they phenotype resembled. But of course they lost their language and um, there's only one in, indigenous village left in Cuba, in Guantanamo near the couple miles up from the American naval base in the mountains, a little over a hundred there and they still have a chief. So. That's the only, literally the only Taino village that still has a traditional chief left since mm-hmm. the time of Columbus. And the DNA testing on them showed that they had no admixture with any other ethnic group. So that was quite remarkable. But yeah, so we are, that entity was the, is the only one that is a genuine voice for all, all corners of the Caribbean, for indigenous peoples. And then the Indigenous Democracy Defense Organization. We needed something, as you and I discussed before, uh, realistically, what can we do? We can't, uh, we don't have the kind of resources to uh, pump millions into anybody. Um, we don't have the, the military strength to, to liberate any oppressed people. But what we can do is use our connections in the UN and different forums. So when there's human rights abuses in, in one territory or one case, we make sure it gets uh, the most important people that need to see that as fast as possible as well as your media contacts to get the word out on as many national and international media platforms as possible. So um, the flow of information out 
of, of affected indigenous communities and to get where it needs to get to and the flow of, of information back in because there's still many indigenous communities that do not know the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And when they do know about it, they get the mistaken impression that this is it. We ain't gonna get better than this. No time, no how. When you have to explain to them, no, actually this is a minimum standard. This is the least that the government is supposed to recognize of your rights. Mm. From that, the only way is up. We're going forward, we're not going backwards. So flow of information, vital information into communities that belong to IDDO reach out to us and the flow of information out of affected communities. So that is um, a, a mouthpiece for, for both sides of that equation is what we've been more successful and been able to do so far. Uh, with, as you say, it's totally self-funded. There's not a single grant or donor anywhere in the world that ever gave us you know, two cents to rub together. This is all coming out of our pockets. This is mm. the best we can do um, to, to help ourselves, but somebody had to do it. Uh, we can't sit back and wait on you know, someone else. We had to take the initiative and that's what we did. Yeah. Um, Damon, um, probably you've already uh, told me this, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I haven't, I haven't idea or uh, I have a um, like assumption actually is that could it be maybe like, yeah. Could it be that the, situation of how you handled or not handled yeah the um our friends in manipur was what was was in prison could right. could it be that that was like the starts of the um like what what the, that that light bulb moment for the iddo you're exactly right that was the the catalyst for it because it's then that that you you i realized that oh shit so, you know, little nobody's writings in this part of the world, but as long as there's, you know, the writings reach the right ears, they actually got somebody who was illegally detained and tortured and probably would have been murdered, released from prison in India. Uh, it's just all, as I say, using the connections and, and the, the article that he put together because it, it, it was so moving to you and his wife uh, messaged me uh, to let me know, you know Jitna has been arrested and he's uh, he's in jail in this part of you know of Manipur. So oh, shit, so he wrote something quickly and sent it off to Pam. Pam has all the contacts in the UN. Uh, I got as far as it, as it could go. A phone call was made from high up in the UN to high up in the Indian government, which then made a phone call to that state to the chief of police and told him to release our colleague from jail. So. Then I realized that really and truly, sometimes the pen can be mightier than the sword. You know, we had no power to get our brother released from, from a certain fate, but just by getting the right people to, to be aware of what was going on was enough to free him. And up to this day, I don't think he's ever been rearrested because he's such a indigenous celebrity in not in the glamorous sense of Hollywood, but because of what he went through. Um, but the Indian government knows if he's arrested again, it's just going to be more egg on their face. So, you know, it's better to, to ignore this guy. We don't like him. We don't like what he's saying. But if we, you know, break the law and uh, violate his human rights again, the whole world is going to know about it within you know, a matter of hours. So it doesn't make sense. It's not something you can quietly get away with, like so many other indigenous uh, defenders all over the world who disappear or are murdered every year and, you know, 
Your, their story is only known after the fact when it's too late. Mm. Damon, um, the next question is, I think it's some, sent in by someone that has um, encountered you more than once at the United Nations. Um, Damon, you've worn a military outfit to the UN once or twice. Um, what's the story behind it? Yeah, basically, uh, with these 25 years of vigilante activities, that more or less that was paramilitary activities because I never belonged to any official armed forces in, in my life and I never will. Uh, but if we need to take on a, as I believe, every indigenous male for sure, at least in our culture, you're a warrior, whether you like it or not, you're supposed to be in that, be ready to play that role, be in that position to help others who who need that kind of help. So it doesn't matter if you're officially recognized or, or just recognized by your tribe, but you know, if you're a warrior, then you should be able to, con- to conduct yourself as a warrior. So I don't see any any discrepancy with going into the UN, you know, wearing a uniform sometimes, not breaking any any laws. Mm-hmm. I break laws sometimes, but <laughs> not breaking laws in the UN. Mm-hmm. Speaking speaking of um, IDDO um, uh, um, and like military outfit and everything else, uh, the flag behind you. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain that a, l- a little bit uh, so that people uh, have an idea what what they're looking at? Right. Yeah. Well, that is the it's being used by IDDO and also by CADO, Caribbean Marine Development Organization. But it was originally what I designed because my tribe doesn't have a flag. Mm. So I said, well, you know what? The Bolivia was the first state in this hemisphere to be uh, indigenous run. And they've been using those three colors before even the Ethiopian government was using them. If you go and check Wikipedia, a lot of people in the Caribbean think those are Rasta colors, but those were being used by Bolivia before the Rastafarian movement ever came into existence. So mm-hmm. it's actually indigenous colors from this part of the hemisphere. Uh, so just tweaked it a bit. I mean, like in the center, you will see the Harpy Eagle, which is the, the sacred messenger of, of the great Holy Spirit to my clan. That's where we're the Eagle clan. So the Harpy Eagle is on, is on top. Yeah, Harpy Eagle is there. And yeah. then there's a sacred circle. And in that sacred circle is um, four principal crops, the bitter cassava, corn, sweet potato, and um, tobacco. And then there's the anaconda, which is like a banner. But on the anaconda is printed solidarity, loyalty, liberty. And there are two jaguars on either side of the sacred hoop. Because that's kind of the hierarchy of wildlife as we see it in the clan. The sacred animals are the solar, the solar birds, the hawks and the eagles. They fly higher than the others. You know, they, they are the messengers of the great Holy Spirit. And the, we do recognize there's a negative entities uh, on the earth. And the, the biggest snake in the Americas is the anaconda. Mm-hmm. And often in our, our dreams and visions, that represents nothing to do with Christianity's um, Adam and Eve story, but very often for us, the snake, if we dream snakes attacking us, is enemies, you know, something bad is going to happen. Mm. Um, and it's, of course, you know, the, the red being the favorite color, the people, that's where the sacred hoop is colored in red. Um, so the green represents the land, 
the the gold represents you know the love and light of the creator and the red represents the people so the people the creator and the land must always be be in unison but mm. yes yeah, so that that flag uh not only for started off as being a, a clan flag then they say well let me promote it as being a tribal flag so there are some other communities that are interested in adopting it as well because as you say no no local or Arab village ever designed its own flag uh, but then those entities that came out of, of our brainstorming and all had eagle clan involvement so that's why they're using that as well and now there's a, a fourth entity that we're working on which will which will adopt that as well but um more about that in the coming days and weeks mm, mm, thanks thanks so much all right next question um totally different uh type of question would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or forward and meet your future relatives? Mm-hmm. Well, I maybe I would probably have to say I'd rather go back in time because in my dream state, when deceased loved ones have visited me, it was always, uh, apart from the ones that I knew in this life, um, in my lifetime who passed on, my great-grandmother and her father and other as tribal ancestors have, have come and they felt such honor to, to see and meet them. And that's something I'm looking forward to when they physically die, to be reunited with all the ancestors who came before me, um, getting to meet them and, you know, getting to reunite with them. Because I believe my spirit came from a place where we were all together, but being born into the physical reality, like a veil of forgetfulness comes over you. Because maybe it'll be too much of an information overload if you remembered everything from the dawn of time to now. So each lifetime is is a another school for the soul. Uh, we believe that yeah, you Damon Corey will never live again, but the soul that inhabits the body known as Damon Corey has lived before in other bodies and will live again in other bodies. So mm. we come from a spirit world into the physical world. So there's no reason to fear going back to the home that we we all come from. So death doesn't hold any morbid fear or fascination for any indigenous follower of traditional spirituality. Hmm. And um, yeah, I'm not going to add anything. Thank you so much for for, for sharing that. Uh, Change of pace a little bit, um, Damon. Um, What is your, you're going to love this. What is your definition of masculinity? And is it okay for indigenous men to be vulnerable? And I'm going to add a comma to it. Um, What is it that you would like to um, transfer to your your children as as your family man? Right. Yeah, no, no, yeah, we have our own sense of what what it means to be a real man. Uh, A real man is not somebody who beats their children or beats their wife. Uh, they're not your property. Your wife is your, your partner. Your children are just your friends in the spirit world who came staggered years later through your physical union because they needed that conduit. But in the spirit world, we're all the same age. We're all equal. So you can't view your children on, on the earth as being your property to do with as you feel like they're, they're your equals. They're your friends. They just came years later, so that's why they're in younger bodies. Uh, likewise, your wife, you know, she's your partner. She's, we don't believe the 
any home should be run by the male or be dominated by the male. No, the, the home is run by mother and father, the yin and the yang, the male and the female. So that's how we see it. Uh, we do, we do value uh, the ability to bear pain, but it's not only a male thing. Like, I, for example, my son Hathwe, who you've met, when he was two years old, that boy stepped on a piece of wood in the yard that had a nail sticking out of it, a two-inch nail. Nail went into his foot, the bottom of his little foot, and came out the top of his foot. He just froze in place. Tears were running down his face, but he wasn't screaming or hollering out. And I felt great pride that my little two-year-old son could bear that pain you know, mm. without um, hyperventilating and you know, freaking out. So we do value that. Um, that is something that's part of our tribal culture, that a male who cannot bear physical pain is not respected. So I mean, if you get a cut in here, you know, freaking out and, and being panicking over your blood spilling, you know, unless your, your entrails are falling out of your stomach, well, then you have a reason to panic. But I mean, mm. just because you're cut and bleeding, you know, that's minor stuff where you get you got shot or something. But so we, we value toughness, yes. But I mean, yeah, you everybody should have feelings and you should care enough that if something very sad comes to your ears that it would make your eyes well up with water or a tear run down your face. I mean, you're not going to be um, incapacitated by your grief, but there's nothing wrong with tears. I mean, I'm pretty sure when my daughters get married that I'm going to be, I mean, if I'm there, that there'll be tears running down my face because, you know, as your little girl is, she's gone now and she'll be in a, you know, starting her own family. And so that would be a hurtful thing for me. I love my daughters. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'll cry when my boys get married, but there's a, a little more of a connection with father and, and daughter and, you know, being also gender specific roles in our local our society. Like for example, my mother-in-law, when I buried my the brother-in-law closest to me, he was a, my brother friend. He was with me on most of those vigilante activities I wrote about. He was an actual legitimate war veteran from the Suriname guerrilla war. A um, few years older than I, but yeah, when, his, when he died, myself and his father and brothers, we literally dug the grave on the reservation ourselves. We mm -hmm. each had shovels and we dug the six foot deep grave but his mom and sisters could not come anywhere near the grave site until his body was there and ready to be lowered into the ground. Then mm -hmm. they could come and stand around the grave site. So, I mean, to a Western person, that's nonsense. This woman, you know, you carry this child and you for nine months and brought him into the world. Nobody's going to tell you where you can or cannot be. But we understand that for us, there are different roles in society. There are no women hunters in our society. That's dirty work killing other life forms, even though you're providing for your family. Women can fish, everybody can fish because there's some uh, spiritual uh, connection between the, the water, you know, the rivers and the seas and the water of a baby in the mother's womb. So that's probably the only living thing that women can, can kill and not be a taboo, mm -hmm. but to go and kill mammals or birds, women are not supposed to do that. To pick up garbage and, you know, filthy things clean up um, animal feces or whatever no those are strictly male jobs women are never to, to do such filthy things yeah furthermore the reason why western style feminism will not take hold in our society is because traditionally we see women as being spiritually superior to men so why the hell would a woman want to be equal to a man that means stepping down from your moral pedestal 
and joining the you know the males in the gutter mm. no woman in our tribe wants that we recognize that we need each other and we have different roles but uh, we think that women are co-creators with god and so a woman's spirituality is considered more more pure than than the average man then if you want to put it that way yeah um so, so any thoughts on uh when because um thank and thanks thanks so much for this thanks so much for describing that 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 the the role of the men and the women um when you talk about men being warrior like is there I can imagine that there are people that are that are saying that um as a warrior you also need to be able to um yeah uh, show feelings in terms of emotions as in mental health being able to put yourself in a vulnerable position as in having the um yeah the strength to to cry about about something or when you when you feel down or be, having the the strength to be able or the enabling an environment to to uh show you that you're hurting or, or something along along those lines is there any any thoughts on that yeah the tears of grief are normal and accepted nobody will you know ridicule you or think less of you for that um but it's, it's just the the ability to withstand physical pain is very mm-hmm. important because for if you think about it if you if your tribe is being literally uh, persecuted like in war and you know you're going to cry out in pain from a hiding place you've just revealed the location that endangered the lives of everybody that's around you so for your ability to keep quiet and bear that intense pain saves the lives of the people that you're supposed to protect mm-hmm. so that was the the impetus and reason behind uh, being able to bear pain and in, in silence you know even our women when they give birth i've never heard a local our woman screaming out as i have heard in in urban hospitals you know the, and my wife had five children and never had once had a epidural there was no kind of numbing the pain or nothing she gave birth naturally and you never heard her scream out in pain mm. you wouldn't even have known that a child was born until she comes out of the room with a, with a baby an hour later and if you give birth a traditional way in a squatting position the mother can literally it within an hour go back to normal everyday life as if nothing happened but when you're laying on your back which is the western non indigenous way you gravity is not helping you pull the baby out naturally like a squatting position in a horizontal position you're putting stress on the back muscles so uh, you're kind of giving birth sideways instead of up down so there's no wonder then that women who give birth like that need to recuperate for two or three days before they can get back on their feet because as far as you're concerned you're giving birth the wrong way and you're causing uh, stress onto your, your body by doing that mm-hmm. all right uh, damon let, let, let's do the final question then um because um we, we like in the, the before we started recording there's something that you that struck me very interesting and maybe you want to bring it back up um because this question could really much be a like a setup for that um somebody asked like what is in your view the state of the union as in like how are things right now uh, of indigenous peoples in the in the caribbean and yeah like before we start we talk, started talking about um what you did in, like in terms of like covid-19 and how you um yeah it's it's just like how how would you describe it economic sovereignty is it something that is that, yeah. that describe it yeah because as as you as you and i agreed you know you if you 
want to claim autonomy or sovereignty, but yet you're financially dependent on another entity, you are not really independent at all. You're a vassal of whatever entity is bankrolling you and allowing you to exist. When you can stand on your own and self-finance all of your, your people's needs and, and operations, then you truly are sovereign and independent. But, um, so we need to get away from that. And I know it's fashionable now to, to want to demonize entrepreneurship and business ownership, but uh, realistically, that is actually what is required for us to make. It's not like we never engage in commerce. You know, what do you think we were doing hundreds of years ago when we were trading spices or, or jewels or, you know, different kinds of sacred stones or whatever it is, or weapons, baskets, you name it. We were engaged in trade. We were trading with other tribes. It's just that we were using a barter system. It wasn't a cash economy, but it was an economy. So let's get real and, you know, cut the crap. We need to use, uh, well, we are basically we're the product of the times and circumstances we're living in. If barter economy can re be revived and can work for you, great, go for it. But if you can't escape from the current uh, globalization, uh, fiat currency reality, then you need to get in the game. You need to start up businesses and you need to ensure that the uh, profits go back to the tribe and don't get tempted to divert it into your pocket. I mean, everybody deserves to be content and live, but don't follow the Western example to the extent where you start to think only of your own economic enfranchisement. All the businesses that basically since I left high school at the age of 17, I jumped right into self-employment. I've never had to work for anyone. And that is what I'm 47 now. So 30 years, I've never had to work for anyone. I've been working for myself. But what I do is 50% of all the the net income, net profits off of my different small businesses, that goes to funding my indigenous efforts. Uh, if I was flat, broke, and destitute, what they ask could I do to help anybody else? You need to have funds in order to do things in the world we live in. So I'm not going to decry anybody from, from starting a business, but if they're starting it purely with the thoughts of making themselves rich, well, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it to raise funds in order to pump into other you know humanitarian projects for people who need it more than you well great go for it buddy i support you 100 mm. percent. and what would you what would you advise people that want to start a business for themselves uh, that with the intent to help other indigenous peoples but get that um imposter syndrome thought and in, into their head you know what, what what would you advise them well don't um don't make the mistake of Venezuela. Chavez did a lot for, he did more for indigenous peoples of Venezuela than any other leader ever, but they did not manage the cash cow. You cannot divert 100% of your profits into any humanitarian work and expect it to be able to continue. It's gonna flop eventually because the, the infrastructure is gonna collapse. You need to maintain your investment, keep it going. So you need to, that's why I said 50%. You need mm -hmm. to put some money back into the business to, to improve it and expand it. You can't just take all the profits and give them away. Um, also, you will need your own little family has their own life expenses that you need to cover as well. So be realistic. Uh, anything more than 50%, you're going to run into problems in the long run. Some people give less than that, but I think that is a fair, it's like our philosophy with, with farming. 
if we cut two acres of land and we put crops on it, we don't use pesticide or, or want to kill the wildlife for, for destroying, or what Western people say, destroying half of it. No, the land belongs to us and the animals. So obviously, if we have two acres of land planted in crops, the animals have a right to take one of those acres for themselves. So it doesn't bother us. We expect that. But a Western non-Indigenous person, they expect 100% yield from all the land that they're invested in. And that's not spiritually realistic. That's mm. being egotistical and selfish if you want to reap everything from the land. Is the land yours? You're just using it for a short time. It belongs to every living thing. Mm. Um, Damon, we're running... Thank you so much, by the way. And I think we're running a little bit out of time. Any final thoughts uh, for the last two to three minutes, funny th final thoughts, things um, that I forgot to ask you or things that you want people to think about? Hmm. Well, yeah, um, something that we keep reminding the, the students at the, that we co-mentor at the UN is um, the United Nations Declaration. That is something that we need to breathe life into. We cannot you know, just cite it and expect that the, the states are going to embrace it wholeheartedly and give it to us on a silver platter. No, you have to literally start implementing <coughs> what those articles say you have a, we have rights to on the ground. Let it become, let it manifest in your reality of where you are and your people. Uh, for example, every time we, we're doing something, well, we, we, Go ahead and do it. We don't ask the state to do it. But we, even they ask, where did you do this or whatever, say, well, article so-and-so says that we have a right to X, Y, and Z, so therefore we're doing it. You know, after the fact, it's already done. You need to come from that angle, that side of the table, or not be begging on one side, you know, please, can you uh, give us permission to do this? Or no, if this is uh, your right, you don't need to ask anyone for your rights. You, what you do need to do is to start implementing your rights on the ground, not, a, not let it be just some theoretical aspiration on paper. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a mistake most indigenous peoples are, are doing is they like to fall back and say, oh, the UN is a paper tiger. So, you know, what can we do? It's not going to work. It's not helping us. Well, get off your butt and make it work for you. That's what we're doing and we're getting success doing that. So why, why don't you do the same? I'm not saying every country is gonna have the same success because there are states like Indonesia, as you know, that will be far more intolerant and, and hostile and not gonna, um, not gonna be open-minded enough to, to let you get anywhere with it. But still, you, may have, you would never know unless you try um, in the, the countries we're dealing with are a little more wary of the court of public opinion, so they don't want the world to see them as villains. Some countries don't give a damn about what the world thinks of them and they do what they feel like. But if you're lucky enough to live in a country that is image conscious, well, use that to your favor. Use friendly media to push your indigenous agenda. That is what we need to do more and stop you know, lurking in the shadows and sulking and Oh, things aren't getting better and you know, nobody's helping us. Nobody cares about us. We got to care about ourselves. We have to be the movers and shakers in the world today in our issues, in our territories. Perfect. 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 Damon, thank you so much for your time. And um, um, very much looking forward to um, Forum 2021 when we hopefully get to room again 
Um, promise again, I won't spoon you uh, this time around. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, appreciate you you taking the time to sit down with, uh, for this episode. And obviously, uh, once this all this is over, um, we hopefully we can do this another time, but then like then in person. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, bro. Glad right, to be cool. here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. It would mean the world to me um, if you did that. Have a great day.